If you have your Bible with you, you can open to Romans chapter 8. With a slightly different service with the kids doing their musical, we, we knew that we were going to make some adjustments, and so I thought that what we would do since we finished the Ten Commandments last week, we've been um, frequently, along with the Ten Commandments, reminding ourselves amidst conviction and uh, the guilt of our sin, reminding ourselves of the rescue, the redemption, the forgiveness that we have in Christ, and doing so primarily uh, through reciting or rehearsing the truth of Romans 8, 1 through 4. Before I do that, though, once again, last week, Christmas season, we're trying to keep ourselves in the Christmas spirit. We read from Athanasius last week, who talked about the mystery or the wonder of the fact that as Christ was being held by Mary. He was at the same time holding the universe together. Here's another little reflection on the mystery of the incarnation, God the Son becoming a man like us. This is from Augustine. Augustine reflecting on the truth of uh, John 1 where Jesus the Son is referred to as the Word that was in the beginning with God. It says, but how, one will say, can it be that the Word of God by whom the world is governed, by whom all things both were and are created, should contract himself into the womb of a virgin, should leave the angels and be shut up in one woman's womb. The Word of God could surely do all, seeing that the Word of God is omnipotent. At once he could remain with the Father and come to us. At once in the flesh come forth to us and lay concealed in the Father. He was before his own flesh. He created his own mother. He chose her in whom he should be conceived. He created her of whom he should be created. Why do you marvel? It is God of whom I am speaking to you, the Word was God. That notion that God comes in, in human form, a human nature just like ours, is touched on, even if it's briefly, in this passage that we're going to look at for just a few moments here in Romans chapter 8. You'll hear it in verse 3, but read with me Romans 8, 1 through 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. And then here it is, here's Christmas, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, in the time that we have remaining, would you give us insight and understanding into the tremendous hope that is ours because of the Incarnation 
and not merely the fact that the Son became a man like us while retaining all of his godness and divinity, but that in taking on a human nature like ours, he lived the life that we could never live, perfect, sinless, and owing no debt to the law or to you for disobedience, he took the sin debt that we owed and paid it in his own body on the cross. Help us to marvel and rejoice in that. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have spent 10 weeks, one week per commandment in Exodus chapter 20. And there are a couple things that we've seen in over and over again going through the Ten Commandments. One, we've seen pretty clearly over and over again that the Ten Commandments are, as far as God's righteousness is concerned, what it means to live rightly before God and with one another. The Ten Commandments represent, if we can say it this way, the floor, not the ceiling of God's righteousness, right? In other words, the Ten Commandments stand as the basic, the starting point for what righteousness is. And then the law continues through the ensuing chapters in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, in fact, continues on through the Old Testament into the New Testament to take those foundational commands, those foundational statements, and to develop and to show how God is directing, is pointing His people towards real, true righteousness. But the real picture, or the clear picture, the clear revelation of what that righteousness is, doesn't really fully come onto the scene until the person of Jesus Christ arrives and is able to present himself in bodily form to people like us, and, and not only demonstrate righteousness by his example, by his righteous living, but to teach and explain what that righteousness is that God requires of His people. So that we also saw that as you trace and as you follow the trajectory of God's teaching and instruction to His people to say, this is the direction that I want you to move in. I want you to move towards this kind of righteous living. When we get to the person of Jesus Christ, perfect righteousness, and we hear what Jesus says, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that what all of the law and the prophets were trying to tell, were trying to teach, was that God is not merely concerned with what His people do, but even with what they think. That the real righteousness, the real perfection that God is demanding, is commanding His people to live out, is not merely to refrain from the overt act of adultery, for example, but to refrain from any sort of lustful thought that would lead to that adultery. The righteousness that God requires of His people is not merely to refrain from killing your neighbor, but to separate yourself from even anger itself, from a short temper. That's the kind of perfection that God is looking for. The law is concerned, God is concerned not merely with what we do, but even with what we would want to do. And as we continue to see that through the Old Testament into the New Testament with the teaching of Christ and the revelation that He gives to His apostles later on, we began to see very clearly 
that left to ourselves, if all we have to look at is us, is the condition of our own heart, we cannot walk away from the reflection in God's law without saying that we are sin-sick people. Every one of us. But the law did not create that sickness. The law defined what that sickness called sin is. It defined sin. It described it. It exposed it. So if you're in Romans 8, look a few verses up earlier in Romans chapter 7. And look at what Paul says in Romans 7, 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. The law is not the problem. I'm the problem. My heart is the problem. So the temptation then comes in, you can look at God's law and you can say, well, now that I know what sin is, now what I know what it looks like, what it sounds like, what it feels like, okay, now I know. Knowledge is power. I'm just going to buckle down and fly straight. I will just simply not sin. I'll do what the commands tell me to do. Look at what Paul says, continuing on in Romans 7, verse 8. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good so that through the commandment sin would become utterly sinful. Do you hear that? Paul is basically saying this. The law can expose sin. It can define sin. It can reveal sin. But what the law can never do, it can never fix sin. It can never cure your heart sickness. In fact, not only will the law not cure our sin sickness, the reality is, is that the law, because we are so sinful... The law actually serves as a catalyst for sin. When I hear the Lord say to me in the form of a righteous command, you will not covet merit, do you know what my heart does? It covets. When I see that anger is forbidden, 
I find, now that I know what anger is, what sin is, that I am guilty of anger every single day. I don't find myself getting better. I find myself more guilty under the law. Paul says earlier in Romans 5 that as a result of one man's sin, referring to Adam, that judgment has entered into the world resulting in condemnation. Let me tell you, because what Paul is describing here, that the nature of our condition, that we have been so corrupted by sin that even when we are presented with God's righteousness, sin just becomes more alive and more resistant and rebellious to God's righteousness. Paul describes that condition as condemnation. Here's the way to think about that, because this is what Paul is addressing in Romans 8, right? This idea that the law does not cure sin, but only makes me more aware of sin, only makes me more guilty of sin, only stirs sin up in me because of how broken and sick I am. Paul says that description is a good description, a good picturesque way to conceive of the idea of what it means to be condemned. Here's the illustration. We need to think about condemnation here in Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not as condemnation in the sense that we are looking forward to a future judgment. I mean, that is part of condemnation, but that's not all of condemnation. Rather, what Paul is talking about here is that our miserable condition is not just what we stand to earn in the future, that is God's righteous judgment for our sin, but it's even more miserable than than that. We are like, if we can use this illustration, we are like a condemned building. You, you, You know what happens with a condemned building, right? The government or someone in some place of power declares that this building is condemned. It's rotten. It's unlivable. It can't be used anymore. And as a result of that, the only thing left to do with that building is to raise it, to, dis- to level it to the ground. But in the meantime, until that final act of judgment comes, the destruction of that building, for a building to be condemned means that until that judgment, that reckoning comes, nobody can do anything with that building to bring it out of its state of disrepair. That's condemnation. Outside of Christ, you and I are not merely deserving God's judgment that we are running towards. We are in such a miserable state that we have been abandoned to our own sin. There is no good thing that comes from my heart and my mind that would cause God to look on me with any favor or to look on you with any favor. And condemnation means that I, have meant that I am being left to my own metastasizing sin wallowing in that sickness and in that guilt and in that filth until... I reach the day of judgment when I must receive what is due my sin. That is condemnation. And yet Paul says, Romans 8, 1, there is now no 
condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me just say this very simply. If you are here and you do not know that your sins have been paid for by Christ acting as your substitute, there is no managing sin. There is no rising above sin. There is no way to doctor it up. There is no way to make it presentable. You are either condemned in your sin or you are pardoned in Christ. There's no middle ground. And Paul goes in verses 2 and 3 to explain how it can be that people who were condemned are now no longer condemned. Look at verse 2. There is no condemnation, Paul says in verse 1, for those who are in Christ Jesus. For, explanation number 1, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Simply put, what Paul is saying here is that there is a new power working in formerly sin-corrupted people. You once were living and operating under the controlling power of sin and death, but that power that left you in your state of corruption, left you in your state of condemnation, is no longer the power that is operative in your life. It's no longer the controlling power. Now, the operative, defining power in your life is nothing less than the very Spirit of God that gives you real life. That means, people, that if you really know Jesus as Lord and Savior, that means that you will not continue to live the way that you lived before you came to know Christ as Savior. Because to know Christ is to know a power that is greater than sin and death. But it gets even better than that. Because once again, to go back to the illustration of the condemned building, you can't really go into the condemned building to try to renovate it or to remake it unless the legal barrier or the legal declaration is removed and taken out of the way. Right? In other words, you don't go to a building that's been declared condemned, fix it up, and then go back to the city council and say, see what I've done? We don't need to condemn it anymore. You have to uncondemn the building before you can go in and begin to renovate it and make it new. Which is what Paul gets at in verse 3. The reason that we have this new renovating power working in our lives is because, verse 3, what the law could never do, that is, it could never fix us, it could never kill sin, it could never make us righteous, what the law could not do, weak as it was through our flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Just for the sake of time, let me point out just one or two things here, because that verse is loaded. Notice that in order to deal with our condemnation, that condemnation, that legal 
verdict and all of the implications that come with it had to be dealt with if God was to make a new people for himself. He did not merely say they were condemned, but now I'll just give them a fresh start. We just find ourselves right back in the same place, condemned all over again. He sends his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, which I think is Paul's way of saying he is like us in every way, in this human nature, a body, a human mind, human emotions. He is like us in every way in this human nature, except that he has no sin. He has no corruption. He has nothing that he must pay for. Therefore, because he has nothing that he must pay for, because he is not deserving of any judgment or wrath, he can take the condemnation on himself and pay the penalty for people who do deserve it because he does not have to pay for his own penalty. Every ill-timed word, every hostile word, Every act of adultery, every lustful glance, every evil, immoral thought, everything that you and I have done has been put on Jesus. He had no sin to pay for himself, but he paid for all of ours. In order that, Paul says, verse 4, in order that, in paying what the law demanded, in order that the requirement of the law, notice, might be fulfilled not simply for us, although that is gloriously true, he obeys the law and his obedience counts for me, verse 4, that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, which means that because Christ has satisfied the law, because he submitted to it on our behalf, because he paid even the penalty that was required for our sin and disobedience, he now can give us freely all of the righteousness that was his, all of the obedience, all of the perfection, and he can weave that, he can implant that into our hearts. He can ultimately regenerate condemned men and women. And all that the law is pointing God's people to, Paul says now, is fulfilled in us. We now find, by God's grace, that hearts who recoiled from God's law, who hated it because of what it represented and because of what it did to us, we now say things like, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. We meditate on the law day and night. We find it to be our food and our joy. And all of this, all of this transformation from people who were previously condemned to now being people who have been transformed out of a state of condemnation into a state of righteousness has all been done without us ever having to lift a finger. It has been done by the person of the Son in the man that we know as Jesus Christ.
This is what we celebrate at Christmas. We celebrate the eternal Son becoming like us so that He could make us like Him. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you and praise you that in your mercy towards undeserving sinners like us, that you sent your son to take to himself, to take on, to clothe himself with a human nature, complete with all of the weaknesses and the frustrations that we experience, and yet in some miraculous way, without any sin. And having lived a perfect life in obedience to every aspect of the law, not just in external actions, but even in inner thoughts and attitudes, he went to the cross with no sin to pay for his, on his own account, but to pay for every sin that we have committed against you. And we praise you and thank you that not only do we find pardon from the penalty of sin, but we now have freedom from the power of sin. Help us, Father, with joy and gratitude to live in the power of your Spirit in joyful obedience to all of your commands. In Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.